Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Waterloo and France, A Short History, talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graeme Stewart, about the shifting reputation of Napoleon Bonaparte. Professor Jeremy Black, in talking about Napoleon's reputation, uh, we should perhaps start with what his reputation was at the time, not just amongst uh, those who were his enemies, uh, but those in France itself, particularly uh, those who were not part of his dream, not part of his vision, monarchists and other opponents of his regime. How divided was Napoleonic France uh, in its attitude to Napoleon during his uh, years of victories and in the period of his defeat? Um, France was quite divided, but it was very difficult for people to show their uh, views on the matter because it was an authoritarian state. Um, a fair number of royalists, what in addition had uh, gone into exile, as had a certain number of Republicans. Um, I think it's fair to say that we simply don't know. There is no equivalent of public opinion polls in that period. Um, we know that uh, the elections, there's a very good book on this by Irene Collins, the elections held under Napoleon were sort of North Korean in their uh, uh, integrity. Um, and Napoleon never uh, put himself to a um, democratic mandate, however restricted um, this might have been. So it was a military regime and people could, not, could only respond by um, either complying or by doing what a lot of them did, which is going in for low-level non-compliance. Although in some cases there was quite high-level non-compliance in the sense of growing numbers of people who sought to evade conscription. Uh, you've written about Napoleon being as, uh, the, the man was a fud with pretensions and his empire system of expropriation uh, the, the Bourbons uh, wouldn't be said to have had pretensions. They, 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 they were the, the absolute monarchy. But how different was uh, their empire uh, in its system of expropriation uh, from that uh, run by Napoleon? Well, I mean, the, the Bourbons were not uh, abs absolute monarchs. I mean, I think, you know, that's the first thing. There was a system uh, we might um, not... Um, agree with it, but there was a system of um, responsibility to the law, whether the law was expressed through Parlement uh, or uh, other forms of provincial autonomy. Um, and in many senses, Napoleon was more powerful uh, than uh, his Bourbon predecessors, not least, in fact, in uh, enforcing um, conscription. Um, as far as uh, empire was concerned, obviously France had an overseas empire, um, although that would have been, some of the most important parts of that had been lost 
uh, in war with Britain. Um, but one of the interesting aspects under Louis XV and Louis XVI of France's attitudes towards its neighbors was that it had um, tried to settle border disputes in a conciliatory fashion. And in fact, if you look at France's last two territorial acquisitions under the Ancien Regime in Europe, Corsica had been bought from its owners, the Republic of Genoa in 1768, and Lorraine, the Duchy of Lorraine, which came into the French royal patrimony in 1766, did so as a result of a treaty in the 1730s. So France had not, under the Ancien Regime, been, um, as it were, an expansionist, or if to use the term, thuggish state. Um, I think the interesting contrast would be, if one wanted to draw it, between Napoleon and the Republic. Many of the criticisms that are mooted, mooted against Napoleon could also be mooted against the Republican regimes that are in power from 1792 um, uh, onwards. I mean, in Napoleon rises to power as uh, having as a Republican general who then seizes power from the Republic. Um, and indeed, the contrast, as it were, between which is sometimes drawn, as you were drawing it in your question, between Napoleon and the Bourbons is, as, a, as it were, to a degree, malpose, because the Bourbons had already gone. I mean, France was a republic from 1792. Louis XVI had been executed um, in 1793. Louis XVII had died in prison. Louis XVIII, the Comte de Provence, was in exile. So the, the French monarchy had gone. What Napoleon does, which is one of the reasons that a lot of people uh, at the time, though we don't know how many, uh, feel that they cannot forgive him for, was he destroys the Republic. I mean, in a way, and all analogies across time are difficult, he's the Stalin of the Russian Revolution. And um, although I think Lenin, in a way, was a precursor of the Stalin, I mean, um, and in a way, that uh, angered some, and a certain number of, um, of, of Republicans, of course, uh, went off to, to serve uh, for other armies. So I think if you want to criticize Napoleon, you should, or to, to judge him, you should judge him in terms of the Republic, which he overthrew, rather than the Bourbons who'd already been overthrown. And indeed, in looking at the question of how President Macron uh, considered Napoleon, he set up, I mean, I thought he, you know, he was in a difficult position and it's not his job to, to teach us history seminar as it were, but he set up when he said that Napoleon shouldn't be judged by modern standards. And he was referring here to Napoleon's reintroduction of slavery. He set up, the modern as an anachronism against the past as the best criteria for judging Napoleon, which he was perfectly free to do. But of course, what he ignored is that there were a number of judgments, as your first question correctly implied, a, a number of judgments in, from which Napoleon could be considered. And in France today, is Napoleon seen perhaps paradoxically as a 
as a savior of Republican virtues and Republican values, even though uh, you know, he was the emperor who, who, who replaced the Republic. Well, I think that's again a fascinating question. I think it's fair to say that um, France is, as you would expect, um, a country which, as you know, as a mature democracy, you might say, has a number of views not only on the present but also on the past. Um, and you might say that although that what we're seeing at the moment is the contesting of a national account, the sort of process we also see in Britain, um, but another way to look at it is to say that some of the um, national account was always rather unwarranted. But if you go back, of course, one has to be aware that in the 19th century, Napoleon was a highly contentious figure. After all, he was the person that had destroyed the First Republic. His nephew, Louis Napoleon, subsequently Napoleon III, destroys the Second Republic, um, bringing in the Second Empire in 1852. That is brought down by the Prussians in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 and is replaced by the Third Republic, now, neither the Second nor the Third Republic had any particular reason to love Napoleon. What I think you, um, you know, you've got, obviously, it varied by individuals. So radicals opposed to Napoleon III, such as Victor Hugo, who spent Napoleon III's reign in exile, could still possibly present Napoleon I um, in a positive light, and Victor Hugo does in his novel Les Miserables in 1862, in which um, Napoleon comes across as a man of destiny and soul. But there were other figures from that Republican tradition who were very worried about the idea of a proconsul on horseback uh, seizing power. They were worried, for example, about General Boulanger uh, in under the Third Republic. And indeed, if you take that further on, you can see that in the um, Fourth and Fifth uh, Republics, um, with the uh, concern about the reputation of General Pétain, and subsequently with critics of General de Gaulle. Both of those found it, um, to put it mildly, um, irritating um, to uh, face some of these uh, Republican criticisms. Um, they saw themselves as figures who were, uh, had not gone as far as the first emperor, but others didn't take that view. And I can recall being in Paris and looking at uh, depictions of President Sarkozy um, on, uh, uh, as if he was um, Napoleon in, the, in a David painting crossing the Alps. And that was, I think, ridiculous, but nevertheless captured this sense among Republicans, particularly Republicans on the left, um, that there was something illegitimate about uh, Napoleon and about the whole practice of military power in that fashion. Is there, I wonder, also there's something in French discourse about the nature of Napoleon as 
the great man against which all other subsequent politicians cannot match up to in terms of grandeur of vision and uh, sheer uh, uh, power and, and will to power. Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, will to power, which is something the Romantics uh, admired, or some of them admired, was, of course, what led Bertram Russell to describe Hitler as the last Romantic. Um, I'm not sure that we would necessarily applaud will to power. I mean, Saddam Hussein had a will to power. Um, you, on that basis, attacked neighbours and brutalised people. Now, I'm not implying that Napoleon um, was a man as boorish as Saddam Hussein, but I do think you shouldn't necessarily worship a will to power. I mean, the standard account of criminal masterminds are emphasizes, gang leaders emphasizes their will to power. So no, I don't think that that in any way justifies the situation. The, the other thing that is worth bearing in mind is the directory government, which Napoleon overthrew in late 1799, had turned the corner on the second coalition. The second coalition of France's opponents was falling to pieces. Uh, Russia under Tsar Paul uh, was defecting from its allies because it was disenchanted. You don't need to say that Napoleon had to seize power for the Republic to survive. Now, it may well be the case that you could argue that Napoleon's military victories enabled France to dominate Central Europe in 1805, 1806, 1807, and then subsequently to move into Eastern Europe. But obviously that those Napoleon's success was highly ephemeral. And again, one thinks there of the comparison with Adolf Hitler. Um, it wasn't just that it was a will to power, which I think was baleful in itself. It was an unsuccessful will to power, which is even more bizarre as a reason for praising him. Mm -hmm. uh, other than obviously Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, who do you see as the European figures who modelled themselves most closely by, were most inspired by Napoleon? Well, I think Napoleon was most inspiring, not for European figures so much, but for Latin American cordillos. That in a way, when you have a system of no legitimacy of power, because it is a new state that you've, set, that you've created, as in the republics, that followed the Spanish Empire, then those people who wish to use force to seize power have to find some sort of interpretation to justify it. So a figure like Santa Ana um, in Mexico uh, would be a good example. I mean, the attractive feature of the history of the United States is that although there were one or two generals who did clearly have interests in breaking the constitution. James Wilkinson in, is the best example. Um, the Americans on the whole followed a principle that generals or ex-generals should only come to power through constitutional means, as with Andrew Jackson or, or Harrison, for example. Um, but I think that Napoleon offers a opportunity for all um, 
all rulers who are, or all would-be rulers, who have no legitimate basis for power, no base either in terms of hereditary or the mandate of the population or the mandate of a limited portion of the population through some electoral system, he, operate, he offers a way to justify themselves. Now, I personally don't think that's a terribly desirable um, imprint, and I'm glad to say that Fre the French subsequently have largely managed to um, pass that by. And what of the analogies that historians draw between Napoleon and Hitler? Well, some historians vary. You have historians that praise um, uh, uh, um, Napoleon. And um, if you wanted a historian who has written an influential account, which is uh, praising Napoleon, you can think of Andrew Roberts. Uh, I think it's fair to say that I'll the historians have been less sympathetic to Napoleon. And I think what's interesting is the general direction of British historians writing about Napoleon in recent years, uh, recent decades, I would say, has been to emphasize his flaws um, and his limitations, uh, which is exactly what you would expect. I mean, here was a man who gained power through the use of force, um, who clearly loved uh, the panoply of power and being surrounded by the excitement and personnel of war, who created a pseudo-aristocracy with their lands and their titles, uh, which is very reminiscent of Hitler, of course, um, and um, who ultimately failed and caused his own country massive casualties. Um, the, um, the, what is interesting in my mind, and you can see this in one of the, one of the books by Tim Blanning, is when he went on to uh, compare the, um, French, the debates in the French National Assembly in the 1790s um, and what he saw, I think with reason, as, their, as the sort of degree of hysteria in some of those in the early 1790s. He compared those again with modern, um, uh, um, more radical, shall we say, um, uh, forums. And I think the point is that the, both the French Revolution and, the Nap and Napoleon have served modern commentators with as a frame of reference through which and with which to debate the past. And I think that what that does is um, picture the extent to which it has a resonance today. Nobody today, after all, in France, we wouldn't be sitting down and talking about the Fronde or the French wars of religion, even though these were very violent episodes, particularly the wars of religion, but also the Fronde, these were very violent episodes in France, which raised fundamental questions about um, the best way of conducting politics um, and indeed in the French wars of religion led to the to the killing of two successive French kings Henry the third in 1589 and Henry the fourth in 1610 um, but in a way that appears the past that appears to be totally redundant what is interesting 
is that people have been able to resonate with or to pillage, depending upon your point of view, aspects of the past. Now, if one wants to be critical of that, one can say that sometimes this lacks a three-dimensionality. So you could say that the mention of Napoleon reintroducing slavery tells us more about, as President Macron was implying, the situation today than it really does about the ways of looking at things in the early 1800s. On the other hand, for contemporaries and for commentators today, whom were, shall we say, for want of a better term on the left, what this represented was an aspect of a conservatism seen with Napoleon, also seen, for example, with the Concordat with the papacy, in which Napoleon is, um, as it were, not a progressive figure, which is one of the reasons why this is uh, focused on, but in fact, in some respects, insofar as you wish to see history as unidimensional or unidirectional, which I do not wish to see, a regressive figure. I would prefer to say that um, Napoleon was in part um, casting around for constituencies of support, in part was genuinely a racist and didn't like black people, although he didn't really know them. Um, and in, you know, this may be linked to, of course, um, you know, his uh, Josephine's um, background. Um, you, you can make a number of suggestions. Um, all I think it does is help to create a more interesting complexity in considering the figure. And you know, one of the purposes of drawing comparisons with Hitler is not to say that Napoleon was necessarily like Hitler. I mean, after all. Hitler never had battlefield command of an army and simply wouldn't have been up to it, um, et cetera, et cetera. There were differences uh, between the men. Uh, Napoleon worked extremely hard. Hitler was fundamentally lazy. Uh, Napoleon had more intellectual and literary interests than Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. So there are obviously very significant differences between them. But the um, uh, um, Napoleon didn't have, obviously, Hitler's anti-Semitism. Um, but I think that the reason one is making that point is simply to get people to think, because all too often they come away or come over with a very sort of crude um, um, account, often very crude praising account, as you've just uh, suggested when you mentioned about the triumph of the will, as it were, without thinking about the broader implications of the comparisons that could be made. Is there a dichotomy in terms of how historians see Napoleon as a ruler, the policies and diplomacy he pursued in his style of government, and Napoleon the general, or is it usually the case that um, historians who are critical of Napoleon, the man and the politician, also find fault with him as a general? Oh, again, that's a fascinating question. Um, well, I would say, and <laughs> all I've got is my impression. I mean, I know some people, but I don't know everybody, of course. My impression is that much of the discussion of Napoleon as a general takes place 
exists in a separate, um, as it were, field of debate, the debate field of military history. And there, a lot of the attention is given to Napoleon as an operational level commander. The Americans sometimes call that strategy, but that's because they don't understand the distinction between tactics, operational level and strategic level of war. So it's really operational level. And that's where Napoleon is generally praised. Um, and the praise for him can be absolutely unrelated to any sense of his or otherwise as a ruler. Um, I think it's fair to say that if you're interested as Napoleon as a strategist, as understood in my view how strategy ought to be understood, the Americans might call that grand strategy, then clearly Napoleon's inability to um, grasp adequately the nature of limits, his inability to create a success constituency of support for his new order that matches both in grand strategic terms that you might call military but it also matches a perception of his political system so I would say that Napoleon um, uh, in my view uh, should be seen as a failure as a strategist, but as a success as an operational commander. Um, and I would say that's not too complex a view. I would say some military historians would agree with me, others just prefer to focus on the operational side. And I wouldn't say that the latter are necessarily pro or anti-Napoleon as a ruler. Um, they might, in fact, regard that as a slightly irrelevant criteria. In other words, you know, if you're looking at World War II, on which, as you know, I've published, you can discuss the success of breakthrough activities and operational level warfare in 1944-45 without feeling any praise at all for Joseph Stalin or for the system over which he presided. Is there, turning to the 100 Days campaign, is there any kind of historian's consensus about uh, whether Napoleon really fought the best campaign he could in the circumstances in which he found himself or you know, that he was let down by tactical uh, decisions, supposedly being you know, not feeling well on, on, the, on the day of Waterloo, nay, charging uh, forward without proper support and, and so on? Or is there a feeling actually that, that Napoleon, uh, Grucci turning up late, is there a, a sense that actually Napoleon uh, played that campaign as well as he could with the resources he had? Well, again, an excellent question. Uh, no, there is generally a consensus that Napoleon handled it very badly. Um, if you're looking at the day of Waterloo on June the 18th, um, well, let's go through it. I mean, uh, you know, I've written a book on Napoleon. I've written quite extensively on strategies. I mean, just, I mean, it's a good question. You forced me to try and summarise. And of course, that's always a great discipline for a historian. Right. On June the 16th, when he attacked the Prussians at Ligny, he was not able to, he you know, he bashed the Prussians quite heavily, but he wasn't able to destroy their army or to direct their, uh, their axis of retreat. Also, by moving troops backwards and forwards between Ligny and Quatre Bras, where he was fighting, where, sorry, not he personally, where the French were fighting 
the British, he ensured that some of his army wasn't applied in either cases. On June the 17th, he failed to maintain contact with the Prussians and failed whilst the British were retreating um, to, as it were, inflict any significant uh, damage to them. On June the 18th, he failed to uh, envelop um, Wellington's position. He didn't work round Wellington's right, the French left. He failed to uh, make due preparation against the possibility of Prussian troops feeding in onto the British uh, left, his uh, right. Um, he um, actually ended up with a series of batter attacks, rather as at Borodino against the Russians in 1812, which was rather crude. Um, and he lost control of the battle. Battle. Um, and I would say, I mean, you know, uh, you can take different points of view if you like, that he showed himself well below the level that uh, Wellington was showing. Um, but I would also say his entire strategic background for the 1815 operation was deeply flawed. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that Paul Schrader. Uh, I can't remember the quote, my memory is not as good as it used to be, but Paul Schrader in his great book on European international relations from uh, Europe's transformation described him as some kind of brook who was throwing the dice. I mean, and I mean, he was throwing the, <laughs> the dice in a distinctly skewed uh, fashion. He had no real defeats on his opponents that somehow the British would uh, uh, defeat it, would overthrow the government and that you know a government of Whigs would come in that would negotiate with him that uh, if he defeated the Prussians the Prussians would abandon the alliance as they'd abandoned the first coalition in 1795 um, and that then you know he could deal with the Austrians and the Russians this was all cloud cuckoo land stuff I mean the opponents were vastly superior not just in numbers but actually in fighting qualities and command skills um, some of the best French generals weren't willing to stand by him in 1815, and he was in a delusional fashion, and you can see this delusion continuing after uh, Waterloo, when he imagines he can create a new army, assemble it at Laon, and, you know, completely ignores the situation on the ground. Um, so I am very unimpressed by Napoleon. I've written a book on strategy, which has not yet been published, on the strategy in the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. And I am very unimpressed by him. Um, and I think that um, you really do need a combination of tactical, operational and strategic success. If you want to look at a more attractive comparison, and I can understand that people find the comparison with Hitler, some people find that offensive, though, I mean, I can't see why. Um, but um, if you want another comparison of somebody who could be good as a battlefield commander, but lacked the strategic understanding of the situation, that's Hannibal in the Second Punic War. I mean, there are many other generals we can think of, um, you know, but uh, again, a similar kind of scenario. Um, and, end, and of course, ends up going down into in failure. Um, and, and unable to protect his home base in Carthage. Um, so I think that the Napo Napoleon in some respects, to my mind, and you know, I accept that there are other points of view, 
but in my mind is a strategically very flawed individual. Now, the reason I suggested we have this conversation was I was interested in President Macron's uh, dilemma, if you like, as to whether to acknowledge uh, the anniversary with Napoleon and how to acknowledge it. And, you know, President Macron is a clever man, and the obvious way, if you're going to acknowledge it, is to define the, as it were, um, the debating chamber in terms of divine the debate between, you know, you're either me or you go around butchering babies at dawn kind of stuff, which is, in other words, to imply that, uh, that, uh, that there is a clear answer. And of course, what he did was he argued that the critics of Napoleon, and here he was fundamentally responsible responding to the very immediate situation of what the, to the French is the borrowing of Anglo-American, uh, what we would call wokeism, the, uh, but what they call Anglo-American sort of values in uh, applying an element of the present in order to castigate the past. And also, of course, President Macron is looking uh, very much at the need to protect the reputation of France in terms of a challenge which he feels um, uh, he is facing uh, by Marine Le Pen, who is likely to wrap herself in the flag. So you can see where Macron is coming from. And what I think is interesting about that and this exemplifies, as you know, I just brought out a history of France. It exemplifies what you would see in France very clearly, which is judgments of the past are very much written in terms of the politics of the present. Nothing terribly wrong with that. Uh, it's actually what generally happens. Um, it doesn't mean that those are the only values on offer, and it doesn't mean that academics are necessarily matching the desiderata of politicians. But it's worth thinking about that element because, of course, we can see aspects of that in uh, today. I thought Macron's defense of Napoleon against the wokishness of some of the criticism, and I am not a fan of Napoleon. I hope I've made that fairly clear. But I think that, I, that Macron's defense of Napoleon was something that, you know, it wouldn't hurt some British politicians to think about um, trying to defend some figures from the British past against ahistorical and flawed analyses. It still seems a more uh, nuanced defence by Macron of the, the need and the importance to commemorate the bicentenary than uh, it did in 1989 with uh, President François Mitterrand uh, commemorating the fall of the Bastille, which uh, certainly from memory, I, I think you know, the celebrations, you, uh, European leaders were, were summoned to Paris uh, and uh, you know, there was a real sense that the French Revolution was this tremendous gift to mankind and you know, no, no debate about it. In that sense, there seems to be a, a slightly more nuanced, more, more subtle attitude that, that Mitterrand brought to the uh, you know, the, the state-approved version of, of French greatness. Oh, yes, I agree with you entirely. In fact, the French had a, uh, I think it was 
300, 200, I, I think it was 200, I can't remember, uh, historians were invited to Paris, fair paid, looked after, etc. They had four from Britain. I was fortunate enough to be one of the four. And we were addressed by the president, which was, to my mind, absolutely hilarious. I mean, we were all expected to stand. And, and the president came in looking like what I would imagine a reincarnation of Louis XIV in his grandeur. And he sort of looked at us and then he sort of walked to a podium where some flunky in uniform produced a speech. And he read out exactly as you said, a sort of thing of the revolution was of the world and for the world and all the rest of it. And it was, you know, very much intended. It was marvelous of all these French people in the past to reflect glory on President Mitterrand, which is very much um, the attitude. Well, Mitterrand, of course, was a, a great poser and a poser as an intellectual, a great poser, a man who was sort of a very devious and unpleasant individual. I mean, you know, the phrase, the French Sphinx, I mean, I think that's a nice way of putting an alternative to your will to power um, earlier on. I, I think Macron is somebody who um, has more integrity than Mitterrand. I mean, that wouldn't be very difficult, but I think he has more integrity than Mitterrand and more intelligence. And also that the Mitterrand is a member of the Socialist Party. What he was trying to do was annex the French Revolution to the cause of the modern Socialist Party. Now, and in other words, he was doing the classic thing you'd seen under the Third Republic of looking back to the revolution for its validation. Now, Macron's got had a different task, a much harder task, because Napoleon for the French is a harder figure to defend than the revolutionaries. The revolutionaries can be presented as people that modernized France, went wrong with the terror, self-righted, and created a sort of, you know, a more humane society. I mean, obviously that's a caricature given what the brutality that revolutionary forces enforced on French opponents, you know, uh, which wasn't just the terror, um, including incidentally Napoleon, who was, uh, um, um, you know, quite willing to, uh, you know, have uh, men and women shot down if it suited uh, um, the, French Republican cause, let alone what he subsequently did um, as, as uh, emperor. But Macron's task is hard. Um, it would have been interesting to see what how Mitterrand would have presented uh, Napoleon had he been alive uh, this year. Uh, Mitterrand, that is, Napoleon. Um, but the uh, Macron uh, uh, in my view, handled his task, which would always have been harder, with more skill. I mean, Mitterrand was the sort of man that always uh, went, um, you know, for easy tar targets or just avoided the challenge. Um, and I think it was a very easy target, the idea of annex the, uh, the revolution to the cause of modern France and say that it represents the modern world and overlook uh, the problems that it caused. Now, ironically, of course, very ironically, um, this was the summer 
of 1989. And I still think, looking back on that year at the end of 1989, it was absolutely hilarious because Mitterrand's justification of the revolution and its violence and dis its disruption was very similar to the uh, justification that pro-communist intellectuals used to justify the totalitarian systems that communism had led to in Eastern Europe. Um, and indeed, in the case of uh, British left-wing historians, the kind of order they would have liked to impose in Britain itself. Um, now, obviously, in 1989, this was a big hole was to be blown in this interpretation in Eastern Europe. Uh, no similar hole was burnt or blasted in the interpretation of French history. The interesting thing is many French people resisted the revolution, not just aristocratic emigres of a Scarlet Pimpernel type, but many French people resisted. And, you know, obviously the Vendée and the Chouan are famous, but also, for example, the Federalists in, you know, cities like Lyon, Marseille. Um, and their, their account, their view of French history was, as it were, trashed by Mitterrand. And to my mind, that is the great problem of having a unitary account like that, particularly when it's a tendentious account, which is that, you know, you, in effect, can't make the omelette of modernity without breaking the eggs. Um, and I think that that is a dangerous view of history. I think it was a view that was used by many apologists. Uh, I had a colleague who I can recall uh, giving his inaugural justifying Stalin of all people. Um, but the, I think the situation um, is that the, um, you really have to understand the complexities. So in the case of Napoleon, um, I would put it to you that alongside the benign account of Napoleon as a kind of modernizer who moves Europe, uh, particularly Western Europe, towards a more liberal direction, comes the reality of a man who not only was a warlord who was responsible for the death and devastation of many, but also a man who destroyed the republic he had created, that had created him, sorry, he destroyed the republic that had created him, but could not sustain the empire that he had put in its place. Now, to my mind, um, that you, you referred in effect to the triumph of the will at the, uh, at the outset. I would, I don't like the term triumph in history. Let us just simply say that the, your notion of the triumph of the will comes up against my idea that if he was so impressive, he would have been able to sustain and achieve more. And therefore, I know people don't like comparisons, so let us add Hannibal to Hitler, but Hannibal, Hitler, and Napoleon, although they were different as men, um, Hannibal was probably the most talented as a general, um, although they were different as men, nevertheless, all of them failed to understand the situation they were in and brought down many other people with themselves in their baleful failure. Well, that's a good point to uh, lead the discussion. Professor Jeremy Black, whose many books on the subject include the history of France, thank you very much indeed.
you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.